This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I want to welcome Marsha uh, to uh, UCSB, back to UCSB, to the Pollock Theater. Um, and, um, and I just want to say... and. You know, I just want to say that it's it's really a pleasure to have you here to do this. Thank you. <laughs> because um, not only are you, um, you know, an incredible expert in Spanish cinema, but you were the introduction that I had to Spanish cinema a long time ago, and it was um, in 1983 when uh, I took a course in Spanish cinema and then read your essay. No, I had no way of knowing that then... I would find you <laughs> quite personally, and um, and she's been my lifelong mentor. So it's really um, a privilege um, and wonderful to have you here. Um, the film, I, I I think it'd be great to start. Um, how did you how did you get involved with span you know with with working with Spanish cinema, and then how did you find when was your first time seeing this film, and 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 how did that, yeah. how did it impact you then, and <laughs> and does it still impact you in yeah, the same so, way? Well, you know, it was in the mid the mid nineteen seventies, and I saw this film, and it immediately became one of my favorite films of all time, and and also, more specifically, it made me want to write about Spanish cinema. So it was this film, a cluster of films, really. But it was this one in particular where it was very clear what I was trying to do. It, the article was called The Children of Franco and the New Spanish Cinema. And it tried to describe two characters that you would find in all of these films. And what they were was, on the one hand, a child, a precocious child, um, and an emotionally precocious child and a um, emotionally stunted adult. And the child was usually a girl. The stunted adult was usually a man. <laughs> and, it was, and the girl was played by this extraordinary actress, Anna Torrent. And here, you know, she's only seven. I mean, imagine, you're carrying a whole f- film practically. And she was only seven years old. She was also in Carlos Saura's fantastic film, Cria Cuervos, where she tries to, and she thinks she succeeded in killing her father. <laughs> you know, it's very heavy. And again, she carries the film, and so beautifully, um, has a sister who's there too, but there's something compelling that you watch her, particularly that scene where she's uh, watching the film, Frankenstein, you know, and you look at her face, and it's an amazing, amazing face. The father, um, one more thing I would say, this is no Shirley Temple, you know. <laughs> you know, Shirley Temple, who was a wonderful performer, but who never was convincing as a child. <laughs> it was like she was a miniature adult, you know, but she wasn't really a child. And what's extraordinary here is that at the same time that she's so precocious, she's also very realistically a child. And, you know, you think about it, how many films do you actually follow a child's activities, you know, in, this, in the way that this is? As for the father, 
you know, he's uh, philosophical, he's interested in science, but he's also what was frequently called uh, experiencing an inner exile because he's not emotionally available for the rest of the family. And this is all conveyed visually. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, yeah, there's very little dialogue, really very little, very little non-diegetic sound music or anything like that. It, it, so much of it is the wind, the sound of the train. You know, you understand the environment by that. Um, so that's what I was, uh, and it seemed to me that these two characters that I've just described that you find in a number of films, they were all trying to deal with the historical trauma of, this, of the Spanish Civil War. And this was set in 1940, you know, it's around that, that's a year after the Spanish Civil War ends. Mm -hmm. So the Spanish Civil War is there, mm -hmm. but not mentioned. <laughs> You know, if you were going to point to some place where the Spanish Civil War is, it isn't there. And you don't even have to, if you, even if you didn't know that this was about the Spanish Civil War, you could still enjoy this film in a powerful way. And indeed, when the film came out in 73, it immediately won uh, the major prize at the San Sebastian Film Festival, which was, of course, in Spain, and also in, at the Chicago Film Festival simultaneously, right from the beginning. And this allowed you, it showed that it worked with audiences in both ways. Mm -hmm. And Victor Arise was his first feature. It was his first feature, yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then to win both of these prizes was quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And he, now he didn't make that many features, which no. is so interesting. Yeah, he, his whole attitude toward uh, filmmaking was really quite remarkable. He, he did not compromise, you know. He was in control of any one of the visuals. I mean, he could give a, a credit, <laughs> share the credit for writing <laughs> with mm -hmm. someone else, right, as right, he does yeah. here, you see, but, uh, but not for the, the visuals he's in charge of. And over his whole career, he only made three um, feature films, only three. Mm -hmm. and. Um, and each one was made, well, they were made 10 years apart. This one in 73, El Sur in, um, in 83, and then El Sol de Membrillo, the son of the uh, Quinstry, in 1992. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So imagine, you know, like every 10 years you come out with a master, <laughs> masterpiece or masterful work. <laughs> It's quite an unusual pattern mm -hmm. of production, to put mm -hmm. it mildly. So why was 1973 important? What, what is the, I mean, the, the historical context is, you know, still the, of the film is a civil war, but then Franco is still alive, more yes. or less. Well, 1973 was uh, the beginning of what was called the Dicta Blanda, the soft dictatorship. And it started with the assassination of... Uh, Admiral, um, well, the handpicked successor for, for Franco. He, he, was, uh, he was ill, and he was suffering from a long illness, and he had then picked who was going to succeed him, an admirable, an, an admiral um, who was on his side, of course, the, um, the nationalist, a term that may be very familiar to you recently. <laughs> yeah. And they were the fascists, led by Franco. Um, so, 
when this man was um, assassinated, the successor was assassinated by um, the um, Basque terrorists, you know, it was clear that as soon as Franco died, Spain was going to be up for grabs. And indeed, you know, what, what followed was there was an abortive attempt uh, by, the, by the fascist, and it didn't work out. So in 82, they've uh, turned, fa- uh, they turned uh, socialist. They, the socialists are voted into, into power. Um, but so 73, you know, this whole idea of what, what was going to happen, how long it was going to be, well, Franco kept on with this illness. And during this time, when you watch Saturday Night Live, you know, Every week, they would go through, you know, the, the, the routine of the news, and they would summarize the news, and every time, every week, it would always end, and Franco is still dying, <laughs> you know, for two years. <laughs> and then, of course, he dies in 1975. So, 73 was this beginning of this softening of the dictatorship, and more things were possible. And this is when a lot of these great films are made. And 73 is the beginning of that time. So what's really interesting in terms of the paradoxes is that these films were made, um, and yet they were, they were you know, allowed to be screened and, in fact, promoted. Yes. Um, I, there, there are two reasons, in a way, for it. On the one hand, you could say the Franco government, they were interested in the PR value because they wanted to become normalized. You know, they wanted to be... Uh, and, and Franco, you know, although the Spanish Civil War, uh, the cliche is, of course, that it was the dress rehearsal for World War II to come because it was the fascist against the others. And, um, and this was certainly true. Um, but Franco did not let Spain enter World War II. And he kept his distance. He created the distance from both Hitler and Mussolini. Because particularly once he realized they were losing, <laughs> you know. Uh, so then the whole idea of the fascists became much more in the sense of the phalanges and, it, and the orthodox Catholicism, the extreme Catholicism. He switched in that way. And he was even hoping to get money from the Marshall Plan, you know, where, where the United States uh, gave money so to help rebuild and have influence over all those who had participated in World War II. Well, why would Spain get it? They, were, they weren't even in World War II, and they were still fascist. Um, so that wasn't going to work. But, and they wanted to get in, um, in terms of NATO also. So the whole idea of sending these films... Set these films from the leftist opposition to these international festivals. They were like PR to show, you see, we're, we're becoming much more liberalized and therefore we can, we can tolerate these, these works. Uh, it didn't work, but, uh, <laughs> you know, in that regard. Um, but this, in the 60s, they did attract uh, more tourists. That was the first time I ever went to Spain. It was in the 60s, actually, 69. I went. Uh, but there was another factor, too, in this, and that was the filmmakers themselves of the leftist opposition. What they did is they, a lot of them followed a style that was called the Carajeta style, and that was named after the producer from this movie. He was a very interesting guy, Elias um, Carajeta. 
in the 50s, he was a um, Bath soccer star. <laughs> and then in the 60s and 70s, he becomes this independent producer, probably the most important in Spain during this period. And what he did is he urged the filmmakers to adopt this style where it was really subtle and ambiguous. In other words, how can the Frankists, how can the censors censor a film like this? What would you say? You know, too much attention to the child? <laughs> you know, uh, you violence against the violence cat. against the cat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you you couldn't. It would be very hard to pinpoint something that was really objectionable. And this was cultivated by a lot of the filmmakers, Carlos Saura, you know, and he worked with a lot of the very best uh, filmmakers. Um, and you also um, emphasized um, a, a sort of experimental soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And you, you, I think you get this here with the sound of the wind and the train, very little, you know, music. Um, and, and you tell the story visually. It's a visual narrative. So much of this is implicit in what you see. It, it, it really re demands that what you see. And in the classroom, the, the, the last thing that's added to Don Jose are the eyes. You know, that becomes the really, I think, important too. Um, so that's one of the reasons why this. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can talk a little bit about Frankenstein yes. um, in the film. Um, why Frankenstein? And, and I also want to come back to the fact that he uses films in his films. So we'll hold on to that one yeah. and come back to that. But why Frankenstein, why Frankenstein in his film? It's a brilliant choice, uh, uh, really, Frankenstein. If one thing, it's the right period, you know, 31. Um, mm -hmm. The James Whale Frankenstein was made in 1931. And this film is set in 1940. So, you know, a, a truck is not going to bring in a, the latest film. There's going to be time that's going to lapse. And I think the way it starts from the very beginning with the truck bringing mm -hmm. the film in, that you, you see that it's, an, in a way, invading the space. Just as when you see the, uh, the fugitive or the stranger who is um, on the run, he comes in on, off the train, mm -hmm. he invades, you know, as the film does. So it sets that up visually as a parallel. That's, I think, quite interesting. Also, um, one of the things that you see is that um, with Frankenstein is it, it's already survived an adaptation <laughs> Because, you know, of course, it was written by Mary Shelley, who was only 18 at the time when she wrote the classic narrative, I mean, the literature. Um, and um, it's a woman, it's from England. So it's been able to cross the barriers over to be in a really powerful story. You know, like I think Dracula, too, has that quality. But Frankenstein has it, you know, too. And because it has great emotional power in it. Mm -hmm. I feel that the, the real power in it derives from Mary Shelley's own feelings. You know, it, it was suggested by Byron that they compete in all right, these kinds of uh, stories, ghost story. Um, and she's the one who really follows through and does it. Um, but she, here she was 
But she was the daughter, you know, of Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, who was a great feminist, and also of William Godwin, who was an important philosopher and who, who had supported um, uh, our, uh, you know, he, he had supported free, being a free spirit, you mm-hmm. know, free, um, free thinker in many ways. But on the personal plane, he, when, when Mary uh, Wollstonecraft dies a few days after giving birth to Mary Shelley, you know, he never forgives mm-hmm. Mary mm-hmm. Shelley, his daughter. He never, you know, it, it becomes a, a way in which he, re, in many ways, rejects her. I mean, not always explicitly. And this is a common thing, I mean, in terms of a child mm-hmm. being blamed mm-hmm. for the, the fact that the parent, uh, that the mother dies in childbirth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, 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 when you read the story, you wonder, why does Dr. Frankenstein reject the monster as soon as he comes to life? It's not answered. This is not answered in Frankenstein in the myth, in, in the story. And um, I, I think that's a really important thing. So it, in many ways, um, it's that kind of painful experience of being abandoned and rejected for, un, you know, things, for something you didn't even do that manages to survive. Even in the Mel Brooks, <laughs> you know, Young Frankenstein, you're going to see this in your series. You, you know, you'll see that. It still has that kind of power uh, mm-hmm. to, to survive. <laughs> Other things about it, um, on the one hand, um, you know, Frankenstein, it, in, in the story itself, when you say Frankenstein, do you mean the scientist or do you mean the creature that he created? There's that ambiguity that happens, you know, quite apart from this movie. But this movie is all about the ambiguity. Mm-hmm. But that's inherent in the story itself. And the whole question of who was really the monster. Mm-hmm. Is it the creature who didn't, didn't ask to be you know, brought to life? Or is it the scientist, the scientist philosopher? And, um, and I think that there's a tendency to think, of course, that, that it's really about you know, Dr. Frankenstein being... You know, the, mm-hmm. the one who's the monster. And this whole question about, is this right or wrong? You see, that's a very important issue. Uh, and there's that corrosiveness of not knowing whether you're doing right or whether you're doing wrong. And that's at the center mm-hmm. uh, for, for Anna. And, you know, it, it comes out, of course, in the, the whole mushroom, mm-hmm. where they're looking for good and bad mushrooms. And being able to distinguish the bad from the good, or being able to distinguish that on a lot of different levels, and you get yeah. that again and again. Um, yeah, there, there there are other things too. You know, I mean, um, is it like I think you in in your um, Children of Franco essay you call the kids or Anna the monstrous, uh, you know, sort of like the monstrous child in that sense of, of the ambiguity of the child. So 
you know, she's, and especially the sister, Isabel. Yeah, oh, Isabel is, yes. <laughs> she's really mischievous, you might say. <laughs> but, you know, but that moment of, you know, playing with killing the cat. But it, it's also how she embroiders on the story. Mm-hmm. Because Anna, the, ver- the, Anna, the very first question she asks about the, the movie is, mm-hmm. um, why, did, why did he kill the girl? Why did, why did the creature kill, you know, little Maria? And what's really interesting here is that the actual killing, you know, when he throws her into the, into the river, uh, is, 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 is uh, cut out of the film and cut out by the censors, you know, by the Frankish censors. They, they, they had a bunch of rules, and one of them was you didn't actually show the, the death, the violence, you know, despite all the violence in all those films, <laughs> you know, but that was one. And, and so what's, what's so interesting is because you've cut it out, it makes it all the more threatening and all the more um, prob- prom- problematic for her, you know, that, that um, she doesn't know why mm-hmm. they were playing. And, and, and really, in terms of what, um, what Victor Rife chooses to put in, I mean, what you actually see from the movie mm-hmm. is surprising. Mm-hmm. You know, what you see is Maria, the little girl, going to ask her father to play with her. And no, he doesn't want to, he, he, he says, no, he's busy. And then in, in, next we cut to the scene with them, Anna and the creature, um, mm-hmm. near the river, and they throw in the flowers. But it doesn't show, you say that his thinking is he doesn't know, right? He doesn't mm-hmm. know from anything. Right. But if they throw in the flowers and they f- float, if he throws in the little girl, <laughs> she should float too. Unfortunately, she drowns, you know. And then in, when it shows you the father carrying the limp body of his daughter mm-hmm. and going to the village. And the, at the village, you know, they're celebrating a wedding in the, in the further continuation of the scene. So you get this, this really extreme contrast between the grief of the father and the, the joy and pleasure of the, those at the wedding. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of difference, you know, kind of reaction you would have during the Civil War. When, you know, when people, you didn't know all the time, you know, whether in, someone in your family, your neighbors, are the, which side they're on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this would be, a, a, this could really, um, this could make you, expose you to the possibility of being arrested, killed. Because, you know, a lot of people who were the victims of the Spanish Civil War were killed after the war was over. Mm-hmm. This was certainly true. And they're still finding, they're still opening mass graves now and identifying the remains of people who were in those mass graves, particularly, you know, those from the, those from the you know, Republican Republic side. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that really struck me watching it this time, and I hadn't seen it in a long time, um, is just as the, uh, the film has begun and, and we are, you know, the, there's that cutting back and forth between what's happening on the screen and then the father with the bees and, you know, just sort of this coming and going. And then the father is in his study and he hears the movie. Yes. 
Um, and so then he walks towards the window and opens the door so we can hear it some more. And, and it struck me that it begins, like the whole myth, the whole story begins to really descend upon the town. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it, it, the sound spreading, you can hear it everywhere. Yeah. Um, and from there on out, it's just sort of this ambiance and this atmosphere of, of, you know, what they've seen, the mystery of it, what can't be answered. Yes. Um, no, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, I, I think the, the film shows you how people actually use narratives, you know. How, you know, you, you, narratives and your, your interaction with narratives, um, they, they're a way of creating empathy, your ability to empathize with others, your, your ability to take those stories and somehow use them to understand your own life and your own circumstances. And we certainly see that with Anna, you know, all the way through. But I think it's true also with the father and also with Isabel, you know, the others too. And, and the, the way that happens um, throughout the, um, the film, you see more and more of it. I mean, you see, like, for example, when she's in school, and they're doing that Don, um, you know, the, the, the putting the parts Don on Jose. the... Don Jose. Putting <laughs> the, the various um, parts on it. But it's, it's almost like they're constructing an, uh, another, yeah. Mo- yeah. another Frankenstein yeah. monster, you know, in that process of doing that. Suddenly you look at it in that way, or the idea of is it bad or is it good? Uh, you're, you're very interested in that all the way through. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she sees herself as the monster. She sees, you know, she sees the monster as the stranger mm-hmm. whom she's helped, as her father and herself. Mm-hmm. She can use it for all of those. Yeah, and, and with the flexibility. And what's, I think, really important to see is, you know, in this remote village at this particular period, you know, one story comes in. And then it takes over. Yeah. But it's for that week or that month, you know, I think, I can't remember whether they say the week or a month, because this is a beautiful story. This is better than even last week's. But the whole town becomes, you know, right. immersed in this, uh, in, in this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in um, El Sur, so we talked a little bit about earlier about him, the way that Erise uses films in his films, and that, in fact, he has films in all of his films. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the idea of having these three films, it was very interesting, the sense that, um, as I said, you know, each one is, is uh, created at a time when Spain is undergoing a dramatic change. Mm-hmm. This one, you know, the 70, the uh, Spirit of the Beehive, mm-hmm. In terms of what it's representing, the end of the war and, and the beginning of life after the war, and, and the time that it's made, the dictum landa. So you have that doubleness there. Mm-hmm. But El Sur is, is made in um, 80, um, 83, mm-hmm. and it, you know, it's a year after the socialists are voted into power, and you get this dramatic transformations. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, when I, when I, inter- when I interviewed uh, Pedro Almodovar in, in the 80s, like 87, something like that, right after he had um, made, um, 
Matador, yeah, and Love, Desire, two of my favorites, <laughs> really. And, and what, he, what he said was very interesting. He said, you know, everybody's interested in seeing what's happening in Spain, how the changes are putting into effect, being put into effect. And, you know, if you go to the movies and most of the Spanish films you're going to see are just like they were during the Frankist era. Whereas my films, you know, <laughs> they show the total transformation of, uh, as if Franco had not even existed. And that was the being proud of that. So, I mean, in many, and in many ways, there's a truth for that, to that. Um, Arise, I mean, in El Sur, is almost like a sequel to Spirit of the Beehive because it focuses on a, a girl who's a teenager, 17, and she's mm. trying to cope with her father's suicide. And in order to find out about her father, she finds out that, well, that he was on another, the other side mm. you know, of the Civil War with, with his father, and that he was madly in love with an actress. And she goes to the movie to see this actress in a film that happens to be visiting. So there's that mm-hmm. dimension mm-hmm. you're talking about. Um, but... It's um, it's a very powerful film, and, and the, the the visuals are very um, are it's very painterly, just as this film is extremely painterly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the in in so in many ways, Amadovar was right, but you have to recognize that Arise was very interested in. Seeing the 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 lines of continuity, it's not as though this this suddenly goes away, and this ambiguity, this this these mm-hmm. uh, lines that are very uh, uh, they're not strong between the good and the bad. Really, it, it, you have to look at it more carefully. But it's but Almodovar's um, his attitude. You can also understand why many people thought that um, uh, uh, Pan's Labyrinth was in many ways related to Spirit of the Beehive. And people talked about it as, oh, well, it was an update, an update of, of Spirit of the Beehive because it's dealing with, of course, the Spanish Civil War and and a young girl's fantasies. But it's so different. I see it as really the antithesis. Because, I mean, the, the fascists are sadistic beasts <laughs> whom you couldn't possibly miss in terms of the evil. And it's, um, and it's, it's not subtle in any way. I mean, it, it has other values. I'm not saying it has no values. But the whole point is that if you don't know whether you're doing right or wrong, that is a much more corrosive situation that, mm-hmm. that is, is, in a way, more threatening. And that's, I think, really what, what, he, what you have in the... So the, the ambiguity of the Civil War is not as marked in, in um, Labyrinth. No, I mean, the, the, there is no ambiguity yeah. about it. The ambiguity is about it in her fantasy figures that she creates. But in terms of what really happened in the Spanish Civil War and how we treat all those characters, you know, it's very clear cut. 
Yeah. It's very extreme. But you know, even this, this, it's not as though this whole idea of ambiguity is just restricted to Spain. I mean, think about it. This is one of the things that people love so much about um, uh, the, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the very fact that he reaches out and, and, and helps and, and works on the side of uh, Jim, the, the, his friend who's a slave, even though he thinks he's going to go to hell for it. Because again, it's the question of distinguishing between the good and the bad, and this in the context of, of racism. But here, um, he has this too, you know, with Arife. And then the third film that he makes is that it's, uh, El Sol de Membrillo. And this is made in 1992. And what was happening in 1992? Well, it was celebrating the 500 years, you know, of the encounter with the New World, for one thing. And Spain was sponsoring both uh, the Summer Olympics and the World Expo. You know, and it was very exciting to be in Spain at that time. I mean, I can tell you it was a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, so he makes El Sol de Membrillo, and this is a film about, it's almost like it's an answer to, to Almodovar, this is a film <laughs> about um, cultural change, and it raises the question of how do you make a film about cultural change? Um, and Mm -hmm. it, 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 he, he did it in collaboration with a great, the well-known painter, contemporary painter, Antonio Lopez, who is a, you know, a well-known Spanish painter. And the beginning of the film, you, what you have is, you know, you're watching, you're watching this, the painter go in his backyard in Madrid, and he's trying to paint this quince tree. The quince tree, incidentally, and incidentally, was uh, allegedly what the tree in the Garden of Eden, rather than the apple tree, which everybody knows apples m much more readily. But it was really a quince tree, supposedly. Mm -hmm. And you you watch him doing. You don't know what the hell he's doing. You know, he's making little marks on the fruit. He's yeah. and you're you're watching just as we, and for a while in here when we watched the father with the, uh, the beehive. You know, you have to really watch somebody doing. It's something like, you know, if you ever uh, watch uh, uh, how things are made, <laughs> you know, um, and you see, you just watch the, the, process. the process. Well, that's what you, you see in this film, you know, for a really long time. And then you begin to see, no, this is really about Spain being at a moment in history when it's opening its doors to the world, the rest of the world, and you have you know, Chinese artists coming to talk, and you have Polish workers remodeling buildings. You, know, you have all of this. And even in the, um, in the distance, within apartments, you can look in the windows of, of, of places that are miles away, and you can recognize that they're watching television. And what movie are they watching on television? On television, Sammy and Rosie get laid, which is which is one of the best films in terms of ever representing cultural change. And there's you know this recognition that that he's doing this similar thing. And then in the end of the film, you really get a whole issue about representation. In other words, when Lopez was going out in his backyard and trying to paint uh, this fruit, 
What he was doing was the sun would be moving, uh, you know, across the in, and uh, across these trees and making the fruit grow bigger. Therefore, the the fruit was heavier and it would blow, be lowered. So really, in painting the tree, you were painting the sun and you were painting the time. Okay. And this is, was one kind of answer to the question. At the end, and you're also answering the question in terms of what's the difference between the charcoal sketch and the oil painting for, a, um, for, for Lopez, the painter, and then for, for um, Arise, it was the difference between showing something in video and showing something in cinema. And you see these contrasts in the films. So it's about how you represent change mm-hmm. and all these different levels. I, I and, think that's... And, and you see that already in, in Spirit of the Beehive, right? In, yes, that's what he's doing too. He's, yeah. he's showing the how do you represent change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all, all, all three of the films, I think, are very powerful. But, and, and another dimension of them is the painterly quality. I was just saying, you know, about that. The cinematographer mm-hmm. on Spirit of the Beehive is, was Luis Cuadrado, who was uh, one of the greatest cinematographers in Spain. And when he was making this film, he was going blind. He had a brain tumor, and he was, you know, going blind. And he kept on wanting to make the films darker, I talked to other filmmakers that have worked with him, and he would always be trying to convince them they should make the films really dark. And it wasn't just a matter of the fact that he was going blind. It was also a matter that he thought that if Spain could uh, create this real darkness, this black cinema, it would be connected to the black paintings of Spain. It's particularly in the 17th century, and you know, think of Murillo and and um, Velasquez, and you know, and 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 all masters of chiaroscuro. Mm-hmm. In other words, the partially lit objects mm-hmm. coming out of the darkness, and that was possibility to really make um, Spain's cinema distinctive. Mm-hmm. And he's working with existing light in the film, right? Yeah, and in yeah. El Sur particularly, yeah. mm-hmm. he he and but here too, there's a yeah. lot of it. It's, it's, it's shooting with natural light, mm-hmm. you know, and you you see the difference mm-hmm. uh, of, of that um, of that quality. Yeah. So I know once once upon a time you told me <laughs> <laughs> that you've written a screenplay oh. about Mary Shelley. About Mary Wollstonecraft. About Mary Wollstonecraft. <laughs> yes, Be- Beverly Houston and I collaborated on. It never was made, alas. <laughs> but uh, no, but I was very interested in, in in Mary Wollstonecraft, Mary Shelley. I was very interested in 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 them. So to see this here, you know, this this use, but to see that so many people have used Frankenstein because it has that emotional power. Mm-hmm. I think that's really, yeah, that's really crucial. Okay. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I just want to thank Christina, you know, also because, I mean, you know, when I made, uh, uh, did uh, Blood Cinema, 
and it was uh, as a um, companion piece to it, there was a, um, a CD-ROM, and Christina translated it, did the voiceovers. Anyway, she was a really made great contributions. Continues to. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.